This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and you may have heard in the news that the Senate and the House, and very soon uh, Joe Biden, although that may have happened before we released this episode, uh, have passed the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, because they just can't help themselves. And uh, to dis- although it's an enormous act, there's no way we're going to be able to cover all of it. Uh, to to help me discuss this act and some of the tidbits that are in it, Rachel Sass is with me. Rachel, thank you for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me, Brent. Yeah, leave it to our wonderful members of Congress to always come up with an acronymable name to every bill. <laughs> I like we kept the acronym small this time, but it's just such yeah. a lovely sounding act. The Inflation Reduction Act. Doesn't everyone want that right now? I mean, that's mm-hmm. just how could you not want this act to be passed and signed into law? It just sounds true. lovely, like with that name. It's true. Interestingly, when uh, they when they come up with a name for an act that is not easily acronymable, they turn it into an acronym anyways. And then they pronounce mm-hmm. it in some weird way, like um, the Bush tax extension or tax cuts were extra, extra. <laughs> that was the, the pronunciation of the acronym. And then the Trump changes because they were in a reconciliation bill. They didn't really have like an official name. So they just gave it an official name, the Tax Cuts <laughs> and Jobs Act. That wasn't the name of it. They just called it that. TCGA, TCGA. You got to keep fun? it simple. Yeah. yeah. It's a fun game we play. <laughs> Uh, so I love the name of this, uh, first of all, because it doesn't tell you anything about what's in the bill by just reading the name. And the acronym is literally the same acronym for the most popular retirement account uh, in America, the IRA. So or 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 it's the acronym for a terrorist group in Northern Ireland. It depends on which one do you think they were using? <laughs> it's anyone's guess there. <laughs> Anybody's guess. It could be it could be either or both. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a, basically a 50-50 split in the Senate. So maybe one side thought it was IRA, individual retirement account, and the other one thought it was IRA, the Irish terrorist group. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? We're never going to find out. <laughs> there have been uh, there's been a lot of chatter about this in certain aspects of this bill. Uh, so I thought maybe we could dig into a few of the actual things that are in the bill, because the things that are said in the media are not necessarily uh, what is in the bill. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said earlier, it's I mean, it's a pretty hefty bill. I think this thing's over 730 pages. Yep. So it's not uh, it's not something you're going to read over coffee this morning. Um, you're going to have to parse through it quite a bit. And like you said, there's been a lot of hype about it. One, obviously, because of the name, right? Everyone loves that name. But um, it's the successor to the Build Better Back bill that we saw right. so much uh, last year that you and I were freaking out so much about and working so hard. And so there's there's a lot of differences, though, um, from that previous bill and what we're going to be getting now. Again, assuming that President Biden is going to be signing this bill this within a couple of days. Yeah, I mean, it could be within hours, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's going to happen. He's he's going to sign it. He's already made public statements about how great it is. Um, 
basically what he has said is it's the greatest investment in renewable energy or climate change reduction in the nation's history. Just like, okay, that's fine. But I think that um, our focus on climate change is only about two decades old. So to say that is not really to say much, but here we are anyways. And and you might argue, you might argue, if you're sort of following that logic, that U.S. reclamation projects that built a bunch of dams in the U.S. in the 40s and 50s was probably the biggest investment in, quote unquote, clean energy in the nation's history. But never let facts get in the way of a good statement in the media. So far be it from me. I'm not making a commentary on on the worthwhileness of all the dams that we have, but that is just sort of always lurking in the back of my mind when I hear people make statements like that. <laughs> Very true. Very true. That's but, the that's the lawyer. Everything you hear, you have to say. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> Put an asterisk on that one there. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. How about so to dig into something substantive that our listeners might actually be interested in, um, not just my random musings. The corporate minimum tax. Uh, you might recall that in the Build Back Better Act, the idea was that we were going to increase the corporate tax rate from 21% to 25%, which was actually the biggest uh, revenue raiser. So just increasing the corporate tax rate was going to be a massive revenue raiser. They sort of dispensed with that. And for a little bit of background for people who are curious about like, well, where does this come from? Because it seems like a weird thing. Um, you, you may or may not remember that the OECD, which is an organization of basically most of the, I'll say, developed world although that that term is not perfectly descriptive, but um, they they all sort of are, are joined in this international organization called the OECD, and the OECD came up with this plan to fight um, the loss of revenue from corporations moving to low-tax jurisdictions and encouraged all of their members uh, to, to enact a minimum corporate tax on corporations in each member state. And then in that way, you would be able to capture tax revenue that might have flown to a different uh, jurisdiction. So, you know, the big examples in the U.S. are the big tech companies that set up uh, headquarters in, say, Ireland, which has a very low corporate tax rate or some other island nation. And so they then shift off certain assets there and then they pay low or no tax on on, uh, revenue that's generated in those countries, which tends to be a lot. Um, And then they pay very low income tax in the U.S. Okay, so this is sort of targeted at them. So the bill says that corporations that have a book income of a billion dollars or more have to pay this 15% minimum tax. So if their tax rate was less than 15%, then they have to pay a full 15%. And then, uh, and then, they're just sort of subject to this default uh, tax rate, okay? It's a floor, it's not a ceiling, it's a floor. So they could have a higher tax rate depending on the year, which is frankly unlikely with these large corporations based on the way our tax rules work, but that they now have this floor. Interestingly, um, what the smarty pants in Congress who's, who calculate these things were saying is that they think that this tax is going to apply to 150 taxpayers per year. That is it, 150. So if you take, say, like the, the S&P 500, imagine only 150 of the S&P 500 are going to be paying this tax. That's how narrow it is focused. We're hitting some big numbers there, Brent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a billion dollars is a lot, obviously. That's revenue yeah. in one year, one year, not mm-hmm. multiple years. I think they do, sorry, they do an averaging over three years, but um, so so they do this averaging test. So you take the last, this year and then the, the two preceding years and you do this average to, 
to figure out what the the income level was. But really, the main change uh, since the last time they were talking about these sorts of excise taxes, we had a minimum. Sorry, we had a corporate alternative minimum tax before the Trump tax changes, but that was based on your taxable income. But taxable income is so easy to manipulate that you, these corporations could get around it pretty pretty easily. So I think they're thinking in Congress that this is going to prevent them from getting around it as easily. I don't know if that's really true, um, but that's what they're saying. So, but again, it's only it's only going to affect if the projections are true, only going to affect 150 corporate taxpayers every single year. 150 out of all of them, only 150. It's it'll bring in something, right? <laughs> it'll bring, it'll bring in, in a lot. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, this is one of the big, big res revenue raisers. And and this entire bill is meant to actually reduce the deficit by something mm -hmm. like $160 billion. So this is part of the way they're doing that. That just goes to show how much money those corporations already make. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing that they're adding in here um, to generate some revenue is going to be a 1% excise tax on any corporate stock buybacks. Right. Um, this isn't going to take effect until next year. So this year, corporations are going to get those buybacks in. But we saw this uh, really increase during the pandemic where corporations would buy back some of their stocks. Um, and that was in to kind of help increase the value of the company when we, we were getting these the, the stock off the market. Um, so now there's just going to be automatic 1% excise tax. This was a provision that was kind of added in at the last minute um, as because it's in, in lieu of some some other provisions that they were negotiating in Congress. And it's just a 1% tax. So it's again, it's, it's something it's, it's going to be adding some revenue, uh, trying to reduce the deficit. Um, but it's not a huge game changer where we saw a lot of pushback on this provision. Yeah, and it it only applies to publicly traded stock. And there's a minimum uh, you you have to do a buyback of at least a million dollars in the in your tax year. So I guess a corporation could still buy back $999,999 of stock in year one, and then in year two, do it again, and year three, do it again, and they'd have no problem here. Um, but it has to be a minimum, a million dollars. Why a million? Nobody knows. These numbers are arbitrary. So Just a good, good set round number there. Don't even try to understand. <laughs> But I don't think that's going to affect too many people. There's, uh, I, I was reading some news about this particular provision suggesting that it's got some of the Wall Street types um, nervous, people feeling like it's going to be a drag on the stock market, things like that. I, I can't imagine that it will be. Uh, you know, if, if a 1% tax to buy back stock is is really what's going to drag drag down the stock market. I think we have bigger problems. But <laughs> exactly. That's what some people were suggesting. They're... It, that's really the the main uh, uh, group of tax changes. We'll get back to the IRS in just a second, but th that's really it. So, you know, we were talking, you, you mentioned earlier, Rachel, how we were talking about the Build Back Better Act and all the many tax provisions in it. And then to get the, the final version of whatever that negotiation was, and this is it, these are the tax changes. It, that's pretty nominal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What we saw, corporate tax changes, we saw individual um, personal tax changes, we saw changes um, to our favorite tax rules when it comes to estate and tax planning for, for clients and for families. And so right. this is, yeah, 
pretty, pretty good. Um, it, it got a little bit of something that uh, we saw the Democrats really wanted to push for, but a lot of it was taken out. So you and I are, are okay right now. There's not going to be any mm-hmm. burning of the midnight oil like there was last fall. Yeah, yeah, that I will accept. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, you know, as much as I love working every day of the week, uh, from dark in the morning till dark at night. I'm happy to not do that. There's a there was a provision that was in the original negotiated version of this, which was the sort of mansion version that included uh, uh, a clamping down. I'll say it wasn't an elimination, but a clamping down on the so-called carried interest loophole. That's not really a thing that you'll ever find in the code. Nowhere in the code does it say carried interest or loophole. But uh, the idea was that if you if you were somebody putting together a, an investment fund or a private equity fund, and you, the person putting it together, took some equity as part of compensation for running the fund and doing the management, but that equity under certain partnership tax rules is taxed at, corp- at uh, capital gains rates under certain circumstances. And they were going to put some limits on that. So there, there was already a, a limitation on that that was built into the Trump tax changes that required that you hold that interest for at least three years before you sell it in order to get long-term capital gains treatment, the best capital gains treatment. They were going to increase that to five years, but even that apparently was just too uh, too hotly contested for Kristen Cinema, and she insisted that that come out. It wasn't too hotly contested for Joe Manchin, interestingly enough, uh, but uh, Kirsten Cinema said no. Uh, then it came out a few days ago in an Associated Press article, or what must have been an AP article because it was in the same article was in multiple publications that I saw um, that she had received something like a million dollars of campaign donations from private equity funds since June of this year. Uh, so you know, surprise, surprise, she's not in favor of these carried interest changes. So those came out. It it means that the Trump tax cut changes to the carried interest rules, which again require this three-year holding period. That's what still applies. So there are still restrictions on it. They're just not the restrictions that were being proposed. So yeah. for all the all the doomsdayers out there saying otherwise, that's that's the reality of those rules. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good, uh, really good summary of that. So thank you. That's why you're on. That's why you're <laughs> that's a guest. I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just here to compliment you, Brent. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> thank you. Okay. Um, a couple of things that have to do with um, medical care, I guess. Um, so there were there were really two major um, provisions of note in this bill. Everybody will remember that that basically now the federal government is permitted to negotiate uh, drug prices. Okay, that was that was a big deal. Well, there's there's also a a back end on that where there's an excise tax that applies to drug manufacturers or certain types of drug man- manufacturers who do not enter into what's called a drug pricing agreement with the Social Security Administration. So if they don't do that, then there's this pretty hefty excise tax. It depends on the number of days that they're out of compliance, but the excise tax can be anywhere from, and again, these numbers are made up, but somebody made them up and put them in the bill. I don't know why these are the exact numbers, but the excise tax is anywhere from 185.71% to 1900% of the drug price, depending on that sort of a sliding scale. It depends on how much non-compliance you have. So there's this excise tax to kind of back up the federal government's ability to negotiate drug prices to encourage with a huge stick uh, that drug manufacturers go ahead and do that. The yeah. the well, second, the, yeah, sorry. If I can interrupt you too. The yeah, one thing do. too that's, that's really important about this provision is it only applies for uh, uh, individuals who are on Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you know, that the, the um, 
Democrats, when they were putting together this bill, they really wanted to make it apply to private pay um, individuals as well. We, they couldn't get that. Um, the, the budget committee was not going to have that. They only wanted it to apply uh, to Medicare patients. So, you know, allowing the um, government to negotiate the cost of the prescriptions Again, only going to be for Medicare patients and all of these other provisions that we're seeing in the bill, too, um, where we see the government being able to you know, cap uh, expenses for prescriptions, things like that. Again, it's only going to be applying to Medicare patients. Yeah, that's a good point. So if this doesn't ap apply everywhere, it only applies to Medicare patients. So that then that's kind of why this excise tax applies to um, these drug pricing agreements with the Social Security Administration, not with mm -hmm. everybody in the world. Um, then there's an extension until 2025 of the so-called premium tax credit, uh, which is available for low income taxpayers who are not covered by an employer for for their health in health insurance, who then have to go out to the public market or the exchange to get health insurance. If their health insurance premium exceeds certain thresholds, um, then they're they're allowed a credit for sort of the, uh, I'll say, the delta between a percentage of their income and the amount by which the premium is over this benchmark amount. That's probably all the detail really we need to go into because it's kind of complicated and the, and the, the percentages and things are just mind numbing. But just know that there's this there is this credit for this narrow band of, of people who don't have health coverage otherwise, um, who are in essence at federal poverty level. I'm not I'm not sure how many people that covers because it's got to be a pretty narrow group of folks in, in the country who say are, are too wealthy so to speak, to get onto Medicaid, but they're not wealthy enough or they're not fortunate enough to have employer provided coverage or some other coverage and then they sort of fill in they they fall into this little hole and so therefore they get some assistance from the federal government in the form of a tax credit. Yeah, and overall the the main kind of point for for the extension of the subsidies is really like you're saying it's it's to keep the premiums low for the these individuals. And so I think the the estimate is that the premiums are going to be around $10 a month or lower. Um, so it's really just extending that for uh, a few more years. Yeah, that's it. Just a couple more years. I think it was going to run out in 2023. Am I mm -hmm. right about that? Do I remember that right? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad I, I remember. Um, <laughs> all right. So then shifting gears, that's the bulk of the, the focus for medical costs. I'm so glad they were so focused on medical costs here. Um, it's such a political hot potato. We can't really address it. But then the, the rest of the act really focuses in on incentives for um, renewable energy and what I think the government is touting as climate change um, action so or mediation. So there's no way we can cover all of these. Just everybody know that. So the ones I'm about to mention are like the highlights. Um, that's it. So there is, uh, and all of these really are existing credits, frankly. Most of these are just extensions of those credits. They didn't really come up with something brand new. But there used to be, and there, or there already was, a credit for um, placing into service certain renewable electricity projects, think solar projects. And the person who was paying to build this, if they leased it out, or they sold the energy to a third party, then they could they could receive a credit worth a certain amount of money per kilowatt hour that they generated off of the project. And these projects were um, 
quite uh, popular, I guess I would say. And you probably know that they're quite popular because every time you drive past a school or a library, you see these huge solar panels in the parking lots. Well, all those little projects are projects like this one that I'm describing because, of course, the government is an unrelated party. The government is interested in renewable energy. They might have policies that require that the government have renewable energy. So third parties could were coming in to the government saying, hey, we'll build this facility. We'll sell you the electricity. You buy it from us and we'll basically cover the cost of building it. So you're not out of pocket government, but we're going to take the tax credits. And so, you know, these projects really proliferated. Well, they they uh, they extended this to facilities that are so-called placed in service before 2025. So and I think that was another one that was going to run out in 2023. So the net result, I believe, is going to be you're going to see more of those projects popping up. So more and more uh, parking lots are going to be turned into solar energy facilities, in essence. Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to encourage more people to um, really take advantage and really start using more uh, clean renewable energy. There's also expanded credits for um, electric vehicles, so a lot more EV credits. Again, encouraging people to go out there, go ahead and buy your EVs. If you want that Tesla, put your name on the waiting list now, I guess. Um, and same thing with uh, solar panels for homes. Again, just really trying to encourage people to um, you know, really start those projects. Um, again, it's it's interesting. I think this part, and you know, it, it's it, in my personal opinion, I think it's absolutely wonderful that we have this huge spending package for clean renewable energy. Um, however, we still see a lot of the chip shortage going on. We still see a lot of uh, just so much with just, again, the, the wait list because of all the different um, shortages. And so it'll be interesting to see how this affects that. Um, a lot of these changes don't take place till 2023. So we got to the end of this year to hopefully get uh, manufacturing going again, um, but we'll see maybe some some more production going on starting in 2023 for this. Yeah, and, and a lot of the credits burn off uh, at some point in the future, so these are not Mm-hmm. They don't last forever. So to your point of supply chain issues that could make it difficult to claim these credits, that certainly could happen. Well, let me let me. So let's dig into just a couple of ones that you just mentioned, because I think those are the exact ones that people care about. So the the home you think of like home solar panel, although it's broader than just solar panels, but home solar panel projects, you can get a, a credit for up to 30 percent of the cost that is capped on an annual basis. Um, I think the cap is $1,200 per taxpayer annually. So in a household of two taxpayers, you know, uh, $2,400 capped. So if you're putting on solar for 30 grand on your roof, you're only going to get a credit for $2,400 of that. So you just have to understand that. So uh, but that's the that's the credit for basically houses, um, solar panels on houses. Again, it's it's broader than that because it can include other types of uh, energy projects that relates to what they call non-business property, which obviously your house is. There, it used to be that these projects were only permitted for your primary residence or your principal residence, and they removed that uh, requirement. So now this this kind of credit can be applied to any residential property. So think of second homes or I guess third homes. Um, somebody putting solar panels on those properties now can qualify for these wonderful credits. Yeah, there are also certain caps for different types of things that you do to the house. So they're like spending caps for exterior doors. They're spending caps for uh, things like windows and, and stuff like that. So you kind of have to 
walk through the list. They're not enormous uh, sums of money. So if, 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 if anybody is thinking that now the federal government is going to write them a check to cover the cost of retrofitting their houses, that's not really the case. They'll incentivize it, but they're not going to write the check. Absolutely. Remember, it's the Inflation Reduction Right. So we're not doing a lot of checks out there. <laughs> no. Yeah. Reduced by the by the fact that uh, it will cost you less overall, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, then there are these clean vehicle credits. These are really interesting. The The total amount of credits that you can get is up to seventy five hundred dollars for new vehicles. And these are there's basically two credits. One has to do with the the materials or the minerals that go into the battery. And then the second has to do with the components that are used to manufacture the battery. Um, And basically the idea is that some portion of the minerals that go into the battery or the components going into the battery have to be minerals that are extracted or recycled in the U.S., um, and then the components are things that have to be manufactured in the U.S. at certain percentage levels. And then assuming that your car manufacturer meets those requirements, then you, the buyer, can qualify for up to $7,500 of tax credits. The tax credits also only apply to cars that are like finished, like the manufacturing process is finished in the U.S. So if it was a electric vehicle that is 100% manufactured in another country, you don't get the credit for that vehicle. So you kind of have to be aware of the fact that some foreign car manufacturers who are not finishing off the product in the U.S. are not going to be eligible for this tax credit. And I'm, I'm saying they're not going to be eligible very specifically because this is a tax credit that can be shared. So what you can do, Rachel, the next time you go in to buy your big fuel thirsty vehicle and you get sold on an electric vehicle <laughs> is you can decide to give the dealer the tax credit. Aww, and then in nice S person. I know. See, look at you. And then the dealer basically pays you for the credit, presumably by reducing the the purchase price by the value of the credit, assuming they can calculate it correctly, yeah. of course, <laughs> which I don't know if I would trust them to do that, but that's um, <laughs> that's the rule. But, 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 Rachel, don't get too excited because if the MSRP on your van, SUV, or pickup is over $80,000 or is over $55,000 for other vehicles, then you do not qualify for this beautiful ah. credit. So... What what is it? is it the lightning the Ford Lightning is that the electric the truck? truck yeah that one I don't know how I what do you think the I, MSRP on that is two hundred thousand dollars two hundred fifty thousand dollars oh geez who knows Stephen would know this my husband I'm would kidding know the heat. <laughs> no. I don't think it's that high but no it's, it's I don't think it's eighty it's, grand no it's it's actually pretty reasonably priced I think that uh my my husband is dying to get that truck um but it sounds like my really fancy what Model S Tesla if I get, you know, all the, the fancy upgrades, I don't mm-hmm. think that's going to qualify anymore. No, you're going to you're going to have an issue. You're going to have an issue. Um, also, there is a limitation to prevent rich people from taking this credit. And the limitation says if you have modified adjusted gross income uh, for married filing jointly of three hundred thousand dollars or for uh, just regular single individuals of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. If you're over that threshold, then you cannot to take this credit. So for all the high earners out there uh, who are contemplating buying an EV, but it's under the MSRP, so they're feeling happy, they're going to have to get the old tax returns out to prove that they qualify. Yep, definitely. And hey, just to let you know, mm-hmm. Ford Lightning, MSRP around 40000 Nice. There you go. If you meet those income thresholds, go ahead and sign up to get on the waiting list for the truck. 
I prejudged. That's on me. I prejudged. <laughs> the other uh, vehicle credit has to do with used vehicles. So Rachel goes out. She buys her Ford Lightning one year later. She's sick and tired of it because the Ford Lightning Super Plus Amazing came out and she wants the <laughs> Ford Lightning Super Plus Amazing model and I buy it from her. Um, I can get a credit for up to $40,000, or it's not $44,000, excuse me, uh, off of the sale price. There are modified adjusted gross income thresholds in that case as well. So for um, joint filers, it's $150,000, and for single people, it's $75,000. And again, you can do the neighborly thing and transfer the credit to the dealer, should you be so inclined, uh, which again, they are supposed to be paying you for, presumably on a dollar for dollar basis on the purchase price, but who knows? Who knows if it really works out that way? We'll see. Walk into the car dealership, well-informed, you know uh -huh. how to negotiate this now. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, let's talk about the IRS, everybody's favorite topic. Ah, oh, I love the IRS. This has been the most enjoyable part of this act, I would say, and that's just because of all the very entertaining memes that have come out since last uh, since last week on this. And it's just, it's so lovely. It's so lovely. So the big things that we're seeing here with the IRS, right, is a huge increase in funding um, for the IRS. So close to $80, uh, $80 billion is going to the IRS um, to improve uh, customer service and to improve tax enforcement. So on the customer service side, I'm pretty sure you and me can agree on this, Brent, that that is much needed. If anyone has been on the phone with the IRS and you oh, know, yes. sitting, on, sitting on hold for about four to five hours before you get a potential human being, um, yeah, or just this, like this is much needed. Yeah, four to five hours, and then it just drops you off the call. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah, that's that of course going to happen once at least. <laughs> So that's going to be helping out. Um, they're going to use some of that money for like their operations, uh, modernize their infrastructure, their technology, because also a lot of people know, you I mean, you could still use the good old fax machine with the IRS. So they definitely need to improve all of that. Um, they're supposed to be developing an e-file system, too. So hopefully um, all of that can uh, improve the customer service with the IRS. So you have a more enjoyable experience when you deal with the Internal Revenue Service. As enjoyable as that experience can be in general. Yes, <laughs> exactly. The other big part and the more entertaining part of, of this, and in my opinion, is the money that's going to be uh, used for tax enforcement. And so um, we've seen the IRS has just been, especially since the pandemic, um, severely understaffed. Um, we've seen it in a lot of rulings with the IRS where they just don't have the amount of staff to be able uh, to, to serve certain requests that um, people are submitting to them. And so this is to increase uh, their staff members. Obviously, they're going to have to train a lot of their new staff. So, you know, don't expect a huge increase in audits right away. Right. We got to actually hire these people and train these people. Um, but it's going to be uh, so tax enforcement. So they're going to spend some money, hire some people, and hopefully generate a lot more revenue by now being able to really closely analyze tax returns, uh, maybe increase the potential number of audits, things like that. Potentially, yeah. I think they're good. they need a, a lot of the IRS is quite an agency, but it's typical of government agencies that the government or certain elements of the government have been trying to strangle to death uh, for many years. So the IRS were one of the big issues with the IRS, aside from just being short staffed, is its technology is antiquated, to say the least. Um, its ability to process paper returns is 
horrendous. Its ability to to gather and process information is terrible. Anybody who's ever talked to the IRS trying to get any sort of information out of them about like your tax return is is left frustrated, I think would be the diplomatic way to say it, because oftentimes what happens when you get into an audit with the IRS just because of how bad their uh, technology package is, the IRS will ask you for a copy of the return. They will say, please give us a copy of your return, even though you definitely submitted it to the IRS and you are sort of thinking in the back of your mind, perhaps somebody in the world would have the return and it would be the person I gave it to. But no, 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 that's not the way it works with the IRS. So there's like even on basic, basic levels like that, the IRS has a lot of work to be done to upgrade their own systems. And maybe people don't want the IRS to know where the returns are. I don't know. But the other element to this is that IRS enforcement is uh, can be quite frustrating that what they've in, a, in essence resorted to is just sending letters to people and trying to enforce or do audits by correspondence, which is can be a very frustrating process because you're not really dealing with a human. You're just dealing with an IRS system that's pumping out automatic um, notices. They may still do that. I'm not saying they're going to they're going to go away from that. But when you actually have uh, a case going on where they have made a mistake or they are not very clear about what they're doing or you have some questions about what they're doing, getting a real human on the phone uh, that knows something about the file is very, very helpful oftentimes. Um, and you just can't do it right now. The other thing is that the IRS is one of the government agencies where when you put a dollar in, you get more than a dollar back. It's actually a profit center for the government. And I think the projections on this is that they're going to make something like $200 billion from the money they're going to spend on the IRS, which seems, correct me if I'm wrong, like a really good business decision. Yeah. Put a little bit of money in, you get a lot more back. All right. Yeah. It feels like if you're in favor of government being run like a business, this would be a smart business decision. It's sort of like if you have a business and you walk in as the CEO or president and you notice that business has an enormous back backlog of unpaid accounts receivable. And if all you do is just pay for a company to go contact the people who have accounts receivable, you'll make money every dollar you spend on it, you would definitely spend those dollars. It's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sorry. It's just because it has the name IRS attached to it. People just ugh, don't like that. But Yeah, because the money's <laughs> being paid to the government. People don't always love that. But I understand the sentiment. But for a properly functioning government, it does need money. And um, people who are concerned about the fact that the government is just printing money rather than making money, this is actually one way that they do make money. So it overall, I hope that it's a good thing. Absolutely. If we can just again, if we could just get through to the IRS in under under two hours, I'll take under two hours under for two. a phone call <laughs> with a human. I'll take it. It's worth it. Yeah, it would be worth it. It's so funny because I think like you're mentioning, Rachel, the, the entertainment value of all of the commentary on this, it breaks down on ver a very specific set of lines. And you can almost draw a black line between people who for a living deal with the IRS, mm -hmm. who are skeptical, and people who do deal with the IRS, and they're elated. Yes. And yes. it's like there's a very dark line between those two groups. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's why people sometimes, or, you know, or, or uh, taxpayers sometimes feel like they're tax professionals 
are on the on the side of the IRS and not on the side of the taxpayer is because the tax professional has to deal with the IRS. Like they actually want <laughs> yes. the IRS. No, they don't want the IRS to force you to pay more tax than necessary, but they also don't want a dysfunctional IRS that is completely um, unworkable, that you just, you have no ability to, to talk to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Let's just have a functioning entity. It's efficient. We can get things done. Save, saves everyone time and money then. Yeah. So yeah, to on the list of ways that we're raising money, or the federal government is going to raise money to pay for some of these credits that we're talking about, this, this is one of the ways they're going to fund the IRS. This has been on on the list for a very long time. Um, it had been talked about for the Build Back Better Act, but it came out ultimately. Um, so it was a little bit surprising to see it come back in, but I, I can certainly see why it would have come back in because again, it was it was an easy way to score this with a revenue raising provision that doesn't require you to actually raise tax on anybody. Absolutely. All right, well, that's it. That's the IRA. Again, it's 700 plus pages long, so clearly we didn't cover everything, but hopefully that gives people at least a little bit of flavor to what is in this act and what is soon to become the law if it isn't already the law by the time that we uh, release this episode. So, Rachel, as usual, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, this was fun. We'll do it again. Absolutely. Especially if you just compliment everything I say. I could could do that. I could do that. Perfect. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.